This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Merry Christmas. It's good to see you this morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse 8, picking up where we left off last night. Let's open up our time in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for the blessing of gathering as your people week in and week out to celebrate the gospel, Lord, to celebrate our union with Christ, that we know you and have had our eyes opened to the love that you've shown us in a baby in a manger, a Savior on a cross, an empty tomb. Lord, we pray that that news would change our lives. We pray that we would live differently because this is true. We pray that others would see us and and know you and know that love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we look to a familiar passage, Lord, Give us eyes to see it afresh and anew this Christmas. We love you and ask for your help now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a joy to gather with you to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. The announcement of the gospel in the passage before us this morning is described as good news of great joy. This text is laden with a tone of wonder and praise and expectation and great joy. I have the privilege each week to go in my study and and think about the Word of God, prepare a message to come and bring it to you each week, to study and and, and to, to pray and ask God's for his help as I prepare. And often in that, I read commentaries. I'll read several commentaries each week over a passage uh, to try to get insight. And and you need to be careful as a pastor, as you read commentaries, not to become a running commentary when I stand up before you and just give you information. Sometimes that's what what a commentary is. It can be a little bit dry sometimes and a little bit academic. Um, And so we want to be careful that we don't preach like a commentary. But I was reading a commentary this week about this passage and it just struck me um, kind of the task that that we have as we come to this passage. This this one commentary says this, the mood of chapter 2 verses 18 to 20 should influence the mood of the reader, period. The mood of the passage should influence the mood of the reader. With a song in its heart, heaven sent Jesus to earth. That is the understatement of a lifetime. What's happening in this passage should influence us, and that's true. So we know it's not too often that we gather uh, for, for worship on Christmas Day. Thank you for being here. I know that there are probably all kinds of things on your mind, dealing with food and presents and family coming over perhaps and all the rest. Maybe, maybe it's the opposite of that. Maybe it's being alone this Christmas. I want to cherish the time. I want us to cherish the time that we have together with our families, if that's the case, and time off work, which is likely the case. 
that all comes along with the holiday season. But the joy that defines us as a people is the joy of the good news of a Savior who was born Christ the Lord. It's through Christ that God will be glorified and peace enjoyed between God and man. It's this good news that was first announced to shepherds and at some point announced to us that we have received and that we treasure in our hearts and that we proclaim to others. On Christmas Eve last night, we looked at the circumstances of the birth of Jesus. He was born into a time and space into history under the reign of a man that proclaimed himself to be the son of God, Octavius, Caesar Augustus. Because of a decree for registration, for taxes, Mary and Joseph made the 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, Joseph's city of origin. And it was there in an animal room, a stall, outside of a public shelter, that she gave birth to Jesus, the Son of God. She laid him in an empty feeding trough, which was the earthly throne of the King of Kings. He came in poverty and obscurity. J.C. Ryle says it this way, to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest. This is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. He became the lowest to show us glory in the highest. That's the main point of this passage this morning. He became the lowest to show us glory in the highest. We get a sense of this glory in the latter part of Luke 2. The mood of the passage should influence and impact the mood of the preacher and the mood of the hearer. And of course the gospel does much more than put us in a good mood. It puts us in right standing with God. It brings peace It saves from hell. It opens our eyes to true life. It directs our hearts to love others with the love that we've been shown. When I was growing up, uh, I maybe went to church twice a year if my neighbor invited me. And today would have been one of those days that I would have been in church. I would walk away feeling better. It just seemed right. But in those early years, I totally missed Christ the root and source of true joy in life. Don't miss Christ today. Good news has a name, and it is Jesus Christ. Today we're going to see that in three parts. So if you're looking at our passage, we're going to look at the announcement of good news that is in verses 8 to 14, the announcement from the angels, the the confirmation of good news in verses 15 to 20, as the shepherds hear and confirm by seeing the good news, and then understanding that He became the lowest to show us glory in the highest to save us, we will see that good news has a name in verse 21. Receive the good news with great joy today, and I pray that you would respond like the shepherds respond. Let's dive in with the first announcement that we see of the good news Luke connects what we're about to read with the birth of Jesus that just happened, just taken place, that phrase, in the same region uh, there in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
We know that the region is Judea and that Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And this is where we're introduced to these shepherds, this group of shepherds pastoring their flocks nearby by night. And it's in, just a, a note to think about. The, these shepherds are in the region of Judea near the temple, which means they're likely pastoring flocks that are destined for the temple sacrifices. And just let that imagery just kind of simmer in your mind for a bit. So far, everything that's been upside down that we've seen in Luke's account has been completely upside down as it relates to the birth of Jesus Christ. So we're not totally surprised to see that of all the people on the whole planet that receive an announcement that God has come to earth, it's shepherds on the night shift nearby in a field. Shepherds in Israel did not have a good reputation for several reasons. Uh, One, because of the work that they did. It made them uh, perpetually, ceremonially unclean. So they were in this state of being unclean and, and separated from the worshiping community in that way. They're not upwardly mobile. This is a blue-collar job that required late nights and constant mobility. And they had a reputation for dishonesty. It would be easy to lose count of how many sheep you had and accidentally gain a few or have some show up in your own personal backyard. They were unreliable. So unreliable that their testimonies were not admissible in court. Friends, just take note of this. Take note of this. These are the people that God chose to come to with the greatest news ever told. As Jesus grows up and and calls disciples, we're going to notice this pattern is going to continue. It's not the elite, the highly educated, the wealthy, but it's the uneducated fishermen that he gathers around him. The good news is good news for everyone, for all and so we should examine our hearts to see, is there any, any lurking prejudice or blindness that would keep us from loving and valuing all peoples, the poor, the unimpressive, those that our culture would see as unclean, dirty, out of bounds? Have we forgotten that that is a description of each of us spiritually? Those that can do nothing to benefit us. Remember Mary's song at the, at the beginning in Luke 1 as she's, as she's proclaiming this good news and praising God. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate of those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Another passage that caught my eye this week that honestly I hadn't thought about before was from Jeremiah 33 where Jeremiah prophesies that God would send the Messiah when shepherds were watching their flocks in Judea. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 13. In the cities of the hill country, the places about Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, flocks again shall pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. In those days... And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And listen to this. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord, Yahweh, is our righteousness. Because the Bible is amazing. It has been telling us this story, preparing us this story for hundreds and hundreds of years. The shepherds keeping watch over their flocks 
flocks bound for temple sacrifices, are about to hear the good news of the coming true shepherd, the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. They're the ones keeping the sacrificial system going, and it's a, it's a way of saying it's about to end. The Lamb is being born, and He is going to be your righteousness. Here's how it happened. Verse 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were feel, filled with great fear. Suddenly the night sky is as bright as day. An angel of the Lord, we're not told which one by, by name as we have been before, he appears in God's glory, the Shekinah glory that surrounds the presence of the Lord was upon them. I was reminded this week from, from someone else that at Jesus' birth, there is complete light in the darkness of midnight, and at his death, there is complete darkness at noon. I mean, that ought to be enough to get our attention. Their first reaction is to be filled with fear, and this is a proper and involuntary reaction when sinful man encounters the glory and holiness of God. As far as we know, this is just an angel but it's here that this, this scene takes a turn. The angel has not come to destroy or to frighten, but to comfort and announce the most important words humankind has ever heard. We see it there beginning in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Every single word of that angelic announcement is significant for us. As Dave pointed out a few weeks ago, it's very common for the first words that angels say to human beings would be to get up or don't be afraid. Because our natural response is dread and fear in the sight of these sinless heavenly beings. The, the word angel, though, just means messenger. And this messenger has come to bring a message from heaven of good news, a word that, that is going to be used often in the Gospels to express the full gospel. A messenger who's come to bring good news of great joy. Good news of great joy to all the people. Now here that word for all the people is a word that is used almost exclusively for the people of Israel in the New Testament. And so this is a word coming directly for, Jesus coming directly for, first, the people of Israel. In salvation history, the gospel comes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, that's what we're seeing right now, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So make no mistake, this gospel is a worldwide peoples from every tribe and tongue gospel. Simeon's going to make that clear in, this, in the very uh, next few verses. In verse 32, you could peek down there to see that this gospel has come for not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. But first he comes to his people Israel, and they would not receive him. The angel combines 
four titles for Jesus that summarize why this good news is so good. He is the Son of David, the Savior, the Messiah or the Christ, and the Lord. The Davidic promises pointed to him being the Son of David that would rule forever. This is the sixth time um, Luke has mentioned that Jesus is David's greater son. And so, so Jesus has come to bring a victory that is much greater than the victories that David brought. David slayed a, a giant with a head wound. Jesus is going to crush the head of Satan. He's a different kind of savior. That word savior up to this point in history has been used mainly to communicate salvation from physical danger and destruction. But Jesus has come to do much more than that. More than the shepherds can even know or understand, but they would. If someone comes and announces to you that they are here to be your savior, they're here to save you, it would probably catch you off guard because it implies that you need saving, that you are in trouble. So friend, I wonder how that, that reality hits you, that you need a savior. If you're on an airplane and I said at the beginning of the flight, hey, here's a parachute in case we have any trouble and we start to go down, you're going to want to have this close by. You're probably going to thank me for it, but then maybe throw it aside, maybe use it as a seat cushion. But if I tell you that we're, we're in the air and the, the plane has just lost power in both engines and that we're going down, we're going to be in the ocean in three minutes, everyone on board is going to be dead, unless you strap this parachute on and jump off, the parachute has a whole new meaning. It's a lot more important than it was a few seconds ago. If you're about to go camping in the wilderness in an area that's very known for poisonous snakes, and I give you a few vials of antivenom and say, just in case you run into one of these vipers, you're going to have 20 minutes to live if they bite you. Well, thanks a lot. I'll be fine. Throw it in my backpack. But if you get bitten, where's the antivenom? Where's the medicine? The difference is you either know you need to be saved or you don't. You either urgently understand you are headed for destruction or you don't. Friend, on the authority of Scripture, let me just be clear. The plane is going down. You have been bitten. You are headed for destruction. You have been created in God's image to know Him, worship Him, spread His glory. And all of us, each one of us, has turned away from that purpose. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against Him by ignoring Him, running our lives in our own way, breaking His laws. We are guilty without a Savior. And we will experience His righteous judgment forever in hell apart from a Savior. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. And the angel here in Luke 2 is saying, God has sent a Savior. The son of David. But it gets better. How can he be our savior? He tells us that he is Christ. The Christ. Which means the anointed one. Really it's a title meaning Messiah. Often prophets and, and even the patriarchs at times are said to be anointed or set apart by God. Empowered by the spirit for their particular ministries. But this savior is the anointed one. The promised one. The new Adam, Noah, Moses, David, Israel. And he has been sent from the Father to save a people from their sins. Anointed for the work of redemption. 
Now, how could he do that? Because he is not just the Savior, not just the Christ. He is the Savior, Christ the Lord. This is the only gospel that combines those, those terms together. Savior, Christ, Lord. He is God in the flesh. God has come to save his people. That's why we read that passage from Ezekiel 34. When Ezekiel it records how frustrated God is with the shepherds of Israel. And he says, I'm coming to be the shepherd. I'm coming to save my people. Only God could absorb the punishment for all those that he would save. Only the truly God, truly man, Redeemer, could purchase a people with his unstained, righteous blood. And Jesus would do just that on the cross. He has come not just to be born, but to die in our place and to be raised from the dead. We cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior. Jesus is the only way. Have you responded to that good news? I love that the angel here personalizes the message. Did you notice that to these shepherds? This Savior, Messiah, the Lord, has been born unto you. Verse 11. Unto you, shepherds. Maybe he even uses their name. We don't know their name. But it's a personal presentation to them. Many of us are going to be opening, maybe you already have, opening some Christmas gifts later today. And there's going to be a tag likely on that gift to and from You know someone thought of you and gave you this particular gift. This gift of salvation is unto you. Don't generalize it. This is for everyone. This is You need to personalize it. You personally respond to this good gift of grace, of Jesus as the Savior. He proclaims the good news, the angel does, and then he tells the shepherds what to do next. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I love that. How do we respond to the good news? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. In this case, you're going to find him in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. We find him by faith, trusting him, seeing who he is in the Gospels and believing in him. We hear the good news and we come to Christ. And then we read this Amazing section here, in, beginning in verse 13. And suddenly, there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. The word for host means something like army. This is like a heavenly army, but this army sings. There's a multitude, countless number of angels that appear now to the shepherds in the sky, and they are praising God. This is constantly happening in heaven, nonstop praise and worship to the living God, to Christ. He alone is worthy of this. And now for a brief moment, the reality is seen on earth as it is in heaven. The shepherds see the worth of this newborn king as the angels terrifying, majestic, would bow to this baby, would praise God for the birth of a child. But now with a new song, a new chorus, never to be sung before about the grace and mercy God has shown toward men in coming to earth to save them. Glory to God in the highest 
they say. We see these twin realities that the gospel brings. God receives glory because of his mercy in the gospel. And man, you and I, receive peace. God gets glory through and we receive peace. God is praised for the good news of the gospel, of grace, for the peace that comes to all those, notice, with whom he is well pleased. We shouldn't understand this as as maybe you're familiar, maybe you've memorized, is goodwill to all men, as one translation puts it. This isn't universal salvation. It's peace to those whom God sets His favor, the, the church, the elect of God, those that experience the new birth. They will have peace with God. Friends, there's going to be a lot of people opening up presents today and feasting with their families who do not know this peace, who do not know the peace of God. We ought to be praying that God would open their eyes. Maybe you'll be with them some today or tomorrow with your own family as we announce the good news that God would open their eyes. It's not a man-made peace. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is well known here in Luke's day. The emperor was praised for bringing peace on earth, but it came through nations being subjugated, enslaved, plundered, and oppressed. One Stoic philosopher noted that while the emperor may give peace from war and land and on sea, He is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns for more than even outward peace. Only Jesus can give us peace with God. Paul tells us how in Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the incarnation. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. For peace to come, there has to be a death. And that means there has to first be a life. There has to be a baby born into this broken world to pay the price for our sins. This is the good news of great joy. And it's unto you and unto me. Friends, how will we respond to this good news? How will you respond? Let's think about the way the shepherds respond. In our next kind of section here, we'll think about the confirmation of the good news. It seems as quickly as the angels in this great glory light appear, it vanishes. So who knows how the shepherds can even begin to reconcile this information in their minds, to process all that's been said, not to mention they've just seen an an angel, an angelic army singing glory to God. But, But they waste no time. They jump immediately into action. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Essentially, they just say, hurry up. We've got to go see this. It's like they they set off at a run. Maybe they just forget about their sheep altogether. I don't know. And, And they go and find everything the angels said that they would find. Finding a baby in Bethlehem. That's going to be like finding a needle in a haystack but not when he's lying in a manger. That's a little bit different. That sets them apart. And so the shepherds find him, and then they tell, notice they tell Mary and Joseph the good news. And all will listen. Who will will listen? They tell what they have heard and what they have, have seen. Verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now, I know if you've shared the good news, the good news is simply an announcement, isn't it? And if you've announced this good news to others, 
You've probably experienced what the shepherds experience in these next few verses. That they come with great excitement. The greatest news ever announced. They explain it. And then we, we, we read of the response in verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. So everyone thinks this is amazing. Everyone's wondering, like, what, what is this, this thing? But that doesn't necessarily mean everyone believes. They may have been surprised. They may have talked about it for weeks or even months. But it doesn't mean they necessarily believed. We can wonder, can't we, about spiritual things. Wonder about the good news, the the truth of who Jesus is, and yet never fully believe. We can think about it. We can be exposed to it often and never truly believe. Or maybe that's you. Maybe you're, you're just someone who's been thinking pondering and I want to say that's good you should be thinking and pondering putting these things together in your mind but it's not good to simply live there and stay there either the good news of Jesus is true or it's not there is no halfway Mary's response is different she treasures up these things pondering them in her heart I don't think she fully understands everything that's going on treasure means she's holding on to the words of the gospel by faith But she's still putting these things together, pondering them in her mind. It is a lot to process for her, especially. She's puzzling over probably certain aspects of Jesus' identity, but keeping in mind her need for divine help, for God's grace to understand. So she has faith seeking understanding. That's a good place to be. Faith seeking understanding. I pray that's how you would pursue the message of the good news that you are hearing. By faith, trust Jesus as your treasure treasure him up this is where the analogy of the of the anti-venom and the parachute fall apart when we're done with the parachute we just throw it away when we're healed up we can throw away the anti-venom not jesus he's our treasure for eternity we were made for him believing the gospel leads to treasuring the king to worshiping the king. That's what we see happening even here in our passage. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it has been told to them. They're really just modeling, aren't they, what the angels, they've seen the angels doing. They are too announcing the gospel. They're glorifying God and praising God just as the angels did for his grace. Friend, that is a pattern for each of us as well, isn't it? For all disciples of Jesus, receive the gospel, treasure the gospel, worship God, teach the gospel, go and tell the gospel. Our message here at University Park Baptist Church comes from this paradigm. God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins. We receive the message, we believe it, we treasure it, we teach others and tell others. Friends, no matter who you are, where you are, how far from God you might be, Romans 10, 17 and following, it applies. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Paul just meditates on that idea of hearing and receiving. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? We have been given good news of great joy. And we are called to now go and announce that news 
to all, just like the shepherds do here. And we know that Mary eventually connects the dots. She comes to saving faith in her son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. I think one great example or illustration of that is she gathers with the other disciples to worship God after Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1. And what about you? Are you regularly gathering with God's people to worship and follow Jesus? The church is, in fact, his body, the body of Christ that, that is to witness to him and his love in our community and to the world. We're a community at this church made up of a bunch of shepherds. We're just like these shepherds here in Luke 2. Paul tells the Corinthians that's what they are. They are like in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's who we are. We want to boast in Christ. And we want desperately for others to know and love the Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the good news of great joy. It's Him. And that's the way this passage ends with a transition really into the next section. And I'm just going to summarize this one verse in verse 21 by saying the good news has a name. The good news has a name. So the pattern that we saw with John the Baptist continues with Jesus. On the eighth day, he is circumcised and then named. Verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is done, of course, in accordance with the covenant God made with Abraham. We see it in Genesis 17 of circumcision. Jesus has come to fulfill that covenant where Israel has, has failed. We read in Galatians 4 that But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus identifies with His people as their representative leader, covenant head, and where all Israel has failed in the past, He will be obedient and faithful and true. And Luke's focus here is on the name given to this baby by his parents, the name that was given by the angel. And Joseph and Mary obey that command from God to call their, their, their son Jesus. The gospel has a name, and it's Jesus Christ the Lord. Yahweh saves. There is salvation in no other name, but in the name of Jesus Christ. There is good news of great joy for all the people. Friends, remember as you gather to feast and fellowship later today. That the mood of chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, should influence the mood of the reader, the recipient of the gospel. Joy and salvation come together. Salvation has come. Born in a manger. Born under the law. Fully man. Fully God. Who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and was raised for our justification. For eternal life. For forgiveness. To bring us to God. To be our treasure. Friends, go tell it on the mountain. Glory to God in the highest. Salvation has a name. The gospel has a name. His name is Jesus. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.
Lord, we pray that we would be full of joy and hope this Christmas. And we want that joy and hope to be firmly rooted in the unchangeable gospel, the unshakable, invincible hope that we have in Christ who has come and is coming again. Lord, we pray that you would be central in our time, in our gatherings over the next few days and hours. And that all that we do here at our church would be centered on you. And that we would simply model what we've seen here in Luke 2. That we would receive and treasure and go tell the good news. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.